There are thousands of people serving sentences for a few years, many for decades, who now have the benefit, thanks to Montgomery versus Louisiana, of having their sentence looked at again. The, the logic of Graham and Miller and Montgomery is that there has to be a periodic review of a juvenile's incorrigibility, risk, uh, rehabilitation, um, or there could be a constitutional violation. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I write a blog there called Law Sites. Uh, my co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is unable to be with us today. He was just called into court on an issue. Before we introduce today's topic, uh, let me take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management platform for lawyers. You can find out more about Clio at www.goclio.com. Uh, and one other quick announcement before we begin today's show. We want to let you know that uh, the Legal Talk Network has just relaunched the podcast Law Technology Now, uh, and uh, co-hosting that is Monica Bay, the longtime uh, editor of Law Technology News at American Lawyer Media, and now a fellow with the uh, Codex uh, at Stanford Law School. And yours truly, and we're going to uh, explore the latest in legal technology and so much more there. So those uh, we've got uh, about three episodes of that up now, and look for Law Technology Now on the uh, Legal Talk Network. Well, uh, on January 25th, the in a 6-3 to three opinion written by Justice Kennedy, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, those sentenced as juveniles to mandatory life imprisonment for murder should have a chance to be resentenced or argue for parole. The, the ruling plays off the 2012 decision in Miller v. Alabama, which struck down mandatory life terms without parole for juveniles. Th that opinion must now be applied retroactively and, and could affect uh, at least 1,000 inmates in similar situations around the country. The case, this most recent case, is Montgomery v. Louisiana, and here to discuss it with us and let us talk to us more about the uh, implications of this case uh, are two guests uh, who are well-versed in it. Uh, first of all, let me welcome to the show Emily C. Keller. Emily is a supervising attorney at the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia, where she engages in litigation and policy efforts to improve the child welfare and justice systems, including efforts to eliminate juvenile life without parole. Emily served as co-counsel for Henry Montgomery in Montgomery v. Louisiana before the U.S. Supreme Court, and she co-authored an amicus brief in Miller v. Alabama, uh, the uh, 2012 case we mentioned before. Emily's also submitted amicus briefs in cases around the country challenging the imposition of life without parole and other extreme sentences on juvenile offenders. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Emily Keller. Thank you so much for having me. And also joining us 
today is uh, Professor Christopher Slobogan. Christopher holds the Milton Underwood Chair in Law at Vanderbilt Law School, where he directs the criminal justice program. He's authored several books, including Juveniles at Risk, A Plea for Preventive Justice, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Christopher Slogan. Thank you for having me. And I also wanted to add that uh, a third guest, Charles Stimson, was from the Heritage Foundation, was scheduled to be with us today, uh, but he could not make the show because of a last-minute scheduling change, and we're Hoping we'll be able to have him uh, join us for a future show to talk more about this important topic. So, Emily Keller, let me start with you. And I wonder if you could just give us uh, the background of this case and, and tell us more about uh, about Mr. Montgomery and, and the case that brought him to the Supreme Court. Sure. So, this, Mr. Montgomery, Henry Montgomery, was convicted of a homicide offense for a crime that occurred in 1963 when he was 17 years old. He was convicted of shooting and killing a sheriff's deputy. So for the last half century, he has lived in prison and in a lot of ways grown up in prison. Um, He actually initially received the death penalty, but Mr. Montgomery was an African-American youth who you know, was convicted of killing a, a white sheriff's deputy. Given the racial tension at the time, the death penalty was taken off the table and he was resentenced to life without parole. At the time of his sentencing, there was no other sentence available. There wasn't a, a lesser sentence that he could receive. So he was he couldn't show any evidence that should suggest that he should have a chance to be released from prison. Um, so he served has served, like I said, over a decade in Angola prison in Louisiana, which has historically been a very violent prison, um, a huge prison, and that's where he's grown up. But over the course of the past half century, he's also made a lot of his life. He was really involved in founding an athletic club and really tried to be a mentor to other young inmates who are coming in, has worked a steady job within the context of that prison facility, and really had no hope of release until in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court in Miller versus Alabama held that these mandatory sentences for juveniles are unconstitutional, that kids have to have an opportunity to present mitigation to show that they are less culpable and shouldn't have this harshest available sentence. And he, on his own, filed a petition to the Louisiana state courts, at which point the Louisiana Supreme Court said that Miller doesn't apply retroactively, that it only applied to the new cases in in 2012 and the cases going forward. And then the U.S. Supreme Court decided to hear the case and address this question of whether or not Miller just applied to new cases or whether under the Constitution it has to apply to everybody. And there are thousands of people who have been serving sentences for some for a few years, many for decades, who now have the benefit, thanks to Montgomery versus Louisiana, of having their sentence looked at again when the, the Supreme Court held that, that Miller does apply retroactively. Well, uh, Christopher, just let me bring you into this conversation, and maybe you could give us your impression of, of just what the Supreme Court has done here in, in Montgomery v. Louisiana. Emily's kind of set the stage for, for what the court did, perhaps fill us in a little bit more on what, what the holding was here. 
Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I want to congratulate Emily for success on the Montgomery case. Um, I think it's a fantastic victory for juveniles, and it is a very consequential one uh, because, as Emily stated, it does mean that uh, Miller applies retroactively and the remedy, the retroactive remedy, is to allow people either to be resent juveniles either resentenced or receive a parole hearing. And that gives juveniles, people who were convicted as juveniles, obviously most of them are adults now, uh, it gives them an opportunity to show to a court that they've been rehabilitated, that they're not the way they were at the time of their offense. They're either not as culpable or their character has changed or they become law-abiding citizens, as Mr. Montgomery is attempting to show. And again, that's an exciting development because it, it, it means that there's at least a chance for people who are convicted as juveniles and given life without parole sentences uh, that they will be able to be released from prison because uh, they no longer uh, meet the criteria set out in Montgomery and Graham and in Miller. Has the court said here that that life without parole is is always unconstitutional for a juvenile, or or if not, what has it said? Um, it is it is held that juveniles have the opportunity to show they're eligible for parole for release, but it is per perfectly possible for a person who's convicted as a juvenile to fail in that proof, which would mean they may end up in prison for the rest of their life. But at least they get the parole hearing. At least they get a hearing on the issue of whether they should be released. And certainly there are many people who were convicted as juveniles who are serving life without parole sentences. The estimate, one estimate is upwards of 2,000 who probably uh, can make that kind of showing, at least if, if a court gives them a fair hearing, because many of them have been in prison 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, certainly they've changed dramatically in those years. They've matured. Uh, they may have gone through rehabilitation programs. Uh, they may have rethought their uh, their offense, offending ways. And again, if a court gives them a fair hearing, uh, there's a good chance they will have an opportunity for being released. I just want to, to emphasize that the Miller decision and the Montgomery decision were very clear that permissible occasions for life without parole sentences for juvenile offenders should be really rare and uncommon. The Justice Kennedy in the Montgomery decision said that the life without the possibility of a parole would only be permissible for the rare offender who displayed permanent incorrigibility. And as Christopher said, most people that have been serving these sentences have really developed a record of rehabilitation. And in the natural growth and maturation process, even behind bars, even in prison, um, have really been able to grow into thoughtful, compassionate, remorseful adults who really want a chance to give back and to contribute to society. And so the brain, the, these decisions really rested on brain science and research about adolescent development that says that the actions that kids take when they're, when they're adolescents are very different from the actions that they would take as adults, that they're so much more impulsive, that they're so much more influenced by their peers and, and their family situations. And really importantly, they're so much more prone to be able to be rehabilitated. And it's really the rare juvenile who won't be able to be rehabilitated and to be a productive contributing member of society. 
for new sentencing cases going forward, does that finding of permanent uh, incorrigibility have to be made at the time of sentencing, or is that something that that courts would need to revisit, you know, later in in the course of a prison term? So different states are handling the question differently. I think some states have passed new legislation that gives everyone a second look, either 15, 20, 25 years later, or gives everyone a chance for parole after a certain number of years. But for states that still allow the possibility of a life without parole sentence, that would be a finding that would have to be made at the time of sentencing. It would be a prediction that the court would have to make looking at the circumstances of the offense of whether or not this person is one of those very rare people um, who is permanently incorrigible. Because Justice Kennedy was very clear that if if the person isn't, this ju- the juvenile offender isn't permanently incorrigible, that a life without parole sentence is unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment. Christopher, correct me if I'm wrong, but I read comments that you gave in a Washington Post article. Did I understand you to suggest that the next case might take this further if there is a next case, that that the question, uh, that there are a couple of cases that would push this to sort of a a flat constitutional standard of life without parole being always unconstitutional for a juvenile. Is that right? Well, certainly I think that that could be the next stage in this litigation. I think we've seen a progression from Graham to Miller to Montgomery, where the court has increasingly relaxed its previously categorical approach to Eighth Amendment jurisprudence. Um, It's now, after Montgomery, essentially allowing individualized sentencing to take place, and in fact requiring it to take place, and relevant to what Emily was saying, it is true that in some states, this finding of incorrigibility would have to be found at the front end sentencing proceeding. But I think, in fact, that finding is impossible to make at the time uh, a 17-year-old is sentenced. And that the logic of Graham and Miller and Montgomery is that there has to be a periodic review of a juvenile's uh, incorrigibility, uh, risk, uh, rehabilitation, um, or there could be a constitutional violation. And one other, I think, interesting aspect to all these cases, obviously all these cases just deal with people who commit crimes while juveniles, but Emily mentioned the brain science. The brain science makes very clear that up until about age 25, the brain is still maturing. So I think, again, the logic, I know this would be a stretch as of right now, but the logic of these cases suggests that there should also be parole opportunities, periodic reviews, even for uh, people who commit crimes after the age of 18. Um, Now, that's not going to happen right away. But I think, again, there's the foot in the door for that kind of argument under the Eighth Amendment because of this series of cases. That because the brain is not fully developed, that the finding of permanent incorrigibility couldn't be made at that point? Is that essentially what you're saying? That's partly, yes, that's partly what I'm saying is that it's, it's virtually impossible to declare that someone is incorrigible for the rest of his life at the age of 17. I mean, there's just no science that supports that proposition. Not, not only brain science contradicts that, but general psychological science. Everyone matures. Uh, everyone changes in character at least a little bit um, as they grow older. And uh, it would be virtually impossible to declare someone incorrigible, untreatable, unchangeable at the age of 17. So I think the logic of Graham and Miller and, and Montgomery suggests there has to be periodic review. And by that, I mean not just the kind of one-time hearing that Emily mentioned after 25 years or 20 years, 
but something more akin to the way parole used to operate. Um, periodic review every couple of years. Uh, now, again, this is not going to happen in the near future, but I think all of these cases have set the groundwork for that kind of legal regime. We need to take a short break. Uh, and before we move on to our uh, next segment, we're going to hear a few words from our sponsors. Stay with us. We will be right back. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi. With me today is attorney Emily Keller from the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia and Professor Christopher Slobogan from Vanderbilt Law School, where he leads the criminal justice program there. And we're talking about the Supreme Court's recent decision in Montgomery versus Louisiana, uh, and uh, at the point that we're recording this, uh, it's just a, f- a few few days after the news is broken of the death of Justice Scalia. And uh, the, the dissent uh, in this case, uh, Justice Scalia wrote a dissent in this case, which uh, in, in many ways uh, had many of the classic characteristics I, I think we've come to hear about of a Justice Scalia dis- dissent writing uh, in part. Uh, he, he wrote, uh, in godfather fashion, the majority makes state legislatures an offer they can't refuse, avoid all the utterly impossible nonsense we have required for sentencing juvenile homicide offenders by simply considering them for parole. Mission accomplished. Uh, Emily, uh, any any thoughts on uh, Justice Scalia's dissent in this case? So Justice Scalia has dissented in all of the, the cases relating to, to juvenile sentencing. But I think the, the quote that you just read ties nicely to what Christopher was saying before the break, and that what Justice Scalia is predicting is that by the virtue of these decisions, that life without the possibility of parole is actually going to be taken off the table for juvenile offenders. And that's his prediction of what the legislature would do, whether it's legislatures that do that or the court that eventually does that. I think it is for the for the reason that Christopher was saying, if if what you have to demonstrate at the outset is that a youth is permanently incorrigible, the Supreme Court has also said in, in these sentencing cases that that's a determination that actually you can't make it the outset. You can't look at a child today, a juvenile today, and say, are you going to be the more common teenager who will grow up and grow out of this behavior? Or are you going to be the rare offender who will continue these sorts of behaviors the rest of your life? Looking at a, a, a young person today, you can't make that prediction. And so it does seem like the direction that, that the court is going and legislatures around the country are going is to say, 
let's give everyone a chance for a second look, whether it's parole, another hearing. Again, if, if, peop- if these young people aren't growing up and rehabilitating, if it's about parole opportunities, they're probably not going to get out. But if they are, if they are rehabilitating, if they are taking advantages, advantage of the programs that are being offered um, and really making those connections and wanting to give back to their community, they should have a chance to appear before a judge or before a parole board um, and demonstrate that they're ready and fit to be returned to society. Christopher, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, what I'd add to that is, first of all, starting with the comment on Scalia, whatever you thought of him ideologically, he certainly did have a nice turn of phrase in most of the opinions he wrote. Um, and his general approach to the juvenile cases was a general approach to constitutional jurisprudence uh, writ large. Um, he had a real problem with the justice posing as what he called philosopher kings, as sort of declaring from on high uh, what state legisl- legislature should be up to. Um, the interesting aspect of the series of cases we're talking about now is that the court has gotten further and further away uh, from what used to be the lodestar of Eighth Amendment jurisprudence, which was essentially nose counting what the various states were doing in the given area. Uh, so, for instance, in the Atkins case that exempted people with intellectual disability from the death penalty, uh, the court was able to say that a r- roughly half the death penalty states, and of course all the non-death penalty states, had already exempted people with intellectual disability from the death penalty. Um, and then the rest of the court's reasoning, which is that people with intellectual disability are, are less culpable and less deterrable, was sort of an add-on. Um, in Roper versus Simmons, which exempted juveniles from the death penalty, they could pretty much say the same thing. In Graham, it wasn't quite as easy to say that kind of thing. That is, it wasn't as easy to point to a groundswell of legislative action against um, life without parole. Same thing in Miller. And Montgomery goes even, moves even further away from uh, the nose-counting methodology of delineating what the Eighth Amendment's all about. And I think that must have been driving Justice Scalia crazy. I think in my opening, I, I said there were a, another thousand or so cases of these. And I, I think I heard you say uh, that there maybe are several thousand. What, what, is, what is the impact uh, of this ruling? How many people are affected by this retrospect, retroactively? About 2,000 people nationwide serving these mandatory um, life without parole sentences for crimes that they committed when they were juveniles. I mean, I'm in in Pennsylvania. There are 500 cases in Pennsylvania alone, um, including about 300 from one county, um, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. So this is there's a number of states that have really large populations like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Louisiana, um, that have hundreds of these cases where they're going to have to either get parole or, or get resentenced. Um, and then they're in, in states across the country, some states have a handful, some have a few dozen. Um, but this is something that our colleagues around the country are grappling with, that both the the defenders, the district attorneys, the court systems, the legislatures trying to figure out the best mechanism for handling this number of cases. And what do you think is the best mechanism? I mean, do you have a recommendation? Is, is your organization taking a position on how they should be handled? And our main recommendation is that, that there needs to be an individualized process. Um, I, I know there are there may be some states where the legislature will act and 
follow Justice Kennedy's advice and just give everyone parole. Um, but in, in states like Pennsylvania where that hasn't happened, and you know, the legislatures in a lot of these states will, even if eventually they do that, may not do that quickly. And when you're talking about folks that have been serving in some cases, five or six decades, there is an urgency um, to to make sure that they're getting a, a new sentence and a chance for release. Um, and so for the most part, what Miller really talks about is that these need to be really individualized and these sentences should be tailored to the culpability of the offender. Um, and then what Miller really taught, because Miller was talking about new cases and cases going forward, there are lots of, of factors that sh should be considered based on the young person and their c circumstances at the time of the offense. Um, and what Montgomery adds to that equation is not only should you look at and who that young person was, what were the circumstances that may have influenced their participation in the crime, Montgomery adds the fact that you should look at where the person is now and look at the progress that they've made and that that's something else that really should be um, taken into account in determining what the right sentence is. Yeah, I would add to that. I don't have a recommendation as the best way to proceed after Montgomery, but I think it's important to point out a couple of things. First of all, some states just don't have a parole process, so they're going to have to come up with something else. And the parole process itself, in theory, I think, could work pretty well in states that have it, um, except for the fact that, that, at least in some states, parole is a very informal kind of process. It really uh, doesn't call for the kind of individualized assessment that Emily's talking about, or at least there's not as much formal procedure connected to the parole proceedings as there is, for instance, with a trial or even a sentencing proceeding, where you're going to have a much more adversarial kind of contest and lots more information can, can come out. So I would hope that what states do is actually have a, uh, a formalized open hearing at which the individualization process that Emily's talking about occurs. And the last point I'd make is Emily mentioned the idea that individuals should be able to show uh, they were or are diminishing their culpability, and that should be one grounds for gaining release. And I agree with that. I mean, certainly Graham and Miller and Montgomery all talk about that. Um, but I hope also that a major focus of these individualized hearings is whether the person has gone through a maturation process, a rehabilitation process that makes it unlikely for them to reoffend. Uh, because I think actually, empirically, they're much more likely to be able to show that at the age of 35 or 40 than they are to show that somehow their culpability has become diminished. Yes, it's true. They're now adults. They're no longer juveniles. But that in some ways cuts against a uh, finding of lesser culpability. And there's no actual gold standard for culpability. A court can say someone's uh, culpable at a life sentence level without really being second-guessed because there's no way of second-guessing that particular decision, whereas there is a way of proving or disproving whether someone is high risk or low risk. If you look at some of the resentences of the juvenile cases that have already gone to the court, I mean, Simmons and Miller and Jackson, who are the juveniles involved in the previous court decisions, are serving extremely long sentences, even though they won their cases. Why? Because the courts went back and said, oh, they're still very culpable. They deserve very long sentences. On the other hand, if they looked at whether they're high risk or low risk, whether they're rehabilitated or not, I think there's a much better chance uh, of their being released at about the time 
parole is sought. And if you think that's a good thing, then I think rehabilitation is a better focus than culpability. Are, are some of these uh, prisoners likely to pursue habeas petitions while they're waiting for their states to figure out what's how to handle it? A lot have already, in, especially in Pennsylvania, a lot have already filed federal habeas petitions. And but at, at least what we've heard so far is that um, the federal courts may wait and now that there is a state avenue for relief um, again and give the state the first chance to get this right. I guess I'm wondering just what's what the implication what's what's next uh, after this case I mean, what are the what are the longer term implications for this case uh, beyond those that we've talked about are are there any uh, I, I know we've talked about the possibility of, of of the next case and we've talked about what it might mean for uh, sentencing decisions going forward is, is there any other significance to this case beyond what we've talked about here Emily I I think that there are a lot of implications of this case, partly just in terms of this category of juvenile offender. There, there's so many issues that for Miller and Montgomery to be meaningful, there may be a lot of litigation down the road. Um, the the warning from the Supreme Court or the the finding from the Supreme Court that these should be rare and uncommon um, sentences hasn't been borne out in a lot of the cases that have been proceeding since Miller. There are a lot of people who are still getting juvenile life without parole sentences. So that challenge about striking down life without parole entirely for juvenile offenders, I think, may reach the court or may reach legislatures around the state. Um, specifically for for felony murder cases. There are a lot of people serving these sentences who weren't even the killer, who were maybe the lookout or the driver or um, were a lot part of a, a break-in, but were not armed and may not even have known that their co-defendant was armed. Um, and in a lot of these cases, those uh, in a lot of states, people convicted of felony murder are also serving life without parole sentences. So that's another place where, especially given what we know about adolescent development and their ability to um, foresee kind of the consequences of their actions, that's another case where there may be challenges, even if life without parole isn't struck down for all juvenile offenders, maybe for those convicted of felony murder. I think there are all these related issues that we see coming up, that, that some of which um, Christopher and I have mentioned. One, the fact that some of the in some states these sentences are being replaced by very long term of year sentences. So if you say you can't have life without parole, but you get a 40 year sentence, is that really a meaningful opportunity to obtain relief, release, which is what Graham required? Um, and I think that the question about parole and actual release for, for these men and women who are serving, if it does go to the parole boards, um, I think, again, echoing what Chris said, uh, Christopher said, what are the factors that the parole boards should be considering? Um, and in some states, we're really concerned that the seriousness of the offenses and the early behavior of these people when they were first incarcerated may be strong factors that will deny them that opportunity for parole, even if in their later years they really have rehabilitated. Yeah, go ahead, Christopher. 
Well, I, I would add that in addition to the very long sentences Amy was talking about, there are also these so-called de facto life sentences. In other words, a person is convicted of three counts of a crime and gets uh, three times 50 years or three times 40 years. That's essentially, that is a life sentence if it's imposed consecutively. And those sentences can still be imposed, but I think they can be challenged after Miller and Montgomery. Um, I think actually, staying within the juvenile context, there's also a pretty strong argument now that any form of mandatory sentence is impermissible. And here I'm talking even about a 20-year sentence that's mandatory uh, because it, it doesn't allow the juvenile to show, uh, the, juvenile, the person who was a juvenile when convicted to show that they've changed. And then finally, as I've already mentioned, and this is really stretching it, but you know that's what we academics do is try to stretch doctrine. Um, I think all of this could conceivably apply to people convicted for crimes that they committed while adults uh, because adults can change too. Well, that'll be a case to watch for, for sure. Um, we're, we're just about at the end of our time. I do want to give each of you an opportunity to uh, kind of give your closing thoughts on this. And also, uh, if you would like to let our listeners know how they can uh, learn more about your work or, or follow up with you, we uh, invite you to do that as well. So, uh, Emily Keller from the Juvenile Law Center, why don't we start with you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Montgomery really has presented this this huge opportunity and has followed this line of cases that have shown that kids are different for the purposes of sentencing. Um, and I think now a lot of work lies ahead in, in making sure that Miller and Montgomery are meaningfully implemented. Um, we I work in, in Pennsylvania and across the country and have met with probably hundreds of people serving the sentence and have seen the progress these men and women have made. Um, and I'm really hopeful that they get this chance to get released and, and to give back to society in the way that they've been hoping for, um, some of whom for, for decades. Um, so again, thank you for having me. And we, if you're interested in this issue and you want to learn more, Juvenile Law Center's website is www.jlc.org. Um, and you can contact me. My number is 215-625-0551. Thanks, Ellen, and congratulations on your success in the, in the case. Uh, and Christopher Slobogan, your thought, final thoughts. Well, I want to thank you also for having me. And again, I want to congratulate Emily for success in, in Montgomery. I've, I've pretty much said my piece as to what I think the implications of Montgomery are. I think uh, one more sort of larger uh, perspective on the series of cases is we see the court starting to flex its muscle in the Eighth Amendment area. And with Scalia gone, uh, I think we might even see more of that going on at the Supreme Court level. It'll be very interesting to see what develops within Eighth Amendment jurisprudence um, as a result of this series of cases. Um, so uh, I can be reached, if someone wants to reach me, I can be reached uh, through Vanderbilt Law School. It's easy to find on on the internet. Uh, my book, Juveniles at Risk, that Bob mentioned at the beginning is available somewhere uh, probably on Amazon, and it sort of sketches out some of the things that I and Emily have been saying. And again, I appreciate having been asked to be on this program. Thanks very much, Bob. Well, thanks to uh, both Emily C. Keller, Supervising Attorney at the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia, and Christopher Slobogan, Director of the Criminal Justice Program at Vanderbilt Law School, for taking the time to be with us today and share their thoughts on uh, Montgomery v. Louisiana and uh, what it means uh, both uh, going forward and uh, retroactively. And I really appreciate your time and your thoughts. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you.
Uh, that brings us to the end of another show. This is Bob Ambrogi uh, on behalf of J. Craig Williams and everybody at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.